This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Of this is positive kind of 
you know, bringing innovative ideas and so on. I mean, I think the, the bid that uh, the City of London made to um, have the Olympics staged here uh, several years back now was partly framed in terms of the, the vibrant London, multicultural city, cosmopolitan, diverse, exciting, innovative. In other words, a period in which, brief period, in which uh, all of those aspects associated with migration, cultural diversity, multiculturalism were represented as, you know, as in, in quite positive terms. Now, I do think there's been quite a, uh, a major retrenchment of those still quite hesitant beginnings. And that much of the retrenchment, retrenchment has been figured through women's rights. So it's that aspect of it that I particularly want to talk about. I think a lot of the, uh, the sort of the framing of the current uh, repudiation, retreat from, uh, distancing from multiculturalism uh, gets, sort of invokes the patriarchal treatment of girls and women uh, within minority uh, ethnocultural groups um, and uses that as a kind of key justification for abandoning more inclusive models of multicultural citizenship. I think there's, there's a chair there, there's one there. Um, and I'm very impressed that there are so many people here at 6.15 on Wednesday evening. Um, I think a lot of the, uh, the self-justification for what strikes me as a rather, more, a rather more strident nationalism that we're hearing in many parts of Europe at the moment, uh, part, not by any means all, but part at least of the self-justification for that is the claim that this is necessary to protect the rights of women. Um, one of the, obviously, the most obvious examples of that is the, um, the kind of the strange panic uh, sweeping across uh, a number of parts of Europe uh, about the, uh, the head or face coverings of Muslim uh, girls and women. And what I see, I must say, as the abuse of ideas of sex equality um, in you know, punitive measures taken against the actually very small numbers of Muslim women who adopt very conservative forms of religious dress. Uh, France was obviously a, a leading player in this, um, beginning with the uh, initiative in uh, 2004 uh, to ban the wearing of um, uh, uh, items of conspicuous uh, religious uh, symbolism uh, in the classroom, which was very much aimed at girls wearing um, uh, hijab. Um, and then last year, the even after uh, movement in France to introduce uh, a law uh, banning women from uh, covering their faces in the streets. Uh, Belgium's also been a significant player in this, and Belgium, in fact, uh, thought for a period that it was going to be the first country in Europe that would introduce legislation um, to uh, uh, ban clothing that hides the face, but in fact, free, uh, France beat Belgium to this because. Uh, the Belgian government um, fell apart and you know, uh, the law having been passed in the uh, lower house uh, didn't get the ratification in the, in the Senate. Um, I, I think in these cases, I mean, again, I'm not saying that gender equality is the only justification for these kinds of measures. In the, um, uh, in the Belgian context, uh, there was talk about uh, security 
uh, anxieties. In the French context, there's obviously a very strong uh, notion of the particular kind of version of secularism, naïcité, which is uh, which is so uh, central to French self-understanding. Uh, uh, but the justifications almost always cite women's emancipation as well. So uh, in Belgium, just a quote from a couple of uh, Belgian politicians, Daniel Bataille, the uh, Borka is contrary to the dignity of women. It is a walking prison. Or uh, Denny Ducam, uh, Belgium is the first country to break through the chain <coughs> that has kept countless women enslaved. So this was at the moment when they talked about Belgium would be France and introducing this legislation. Or, or um, uh, Nicolas uh, Sarkozy in 2009 in the uh, French debates. The Borker is not welcome in France. In our country, we cannot accept women prisoners behind a screen, cut off from all social life, deprived of all identity. That's not our idea of freedom. Now, what I think is kind of interesting about those, well, lots of things interesting about it. I mean, but one of the things that's interesting about those kinds of initiatives is the, the way that equality between the sexes comes to figure as this boundary marker between what characterizes a liberal, egalitarian, or modern society um, and what characterizes a patriarchal society. So it comes very much to the fore in the definitions of what, what constitutes um, modernity and patriarchalism. So that the reason that we have to be so punitive towards Muslim women, policing their dress codes, finding them um, if they kind of wear the wrong thing in the street, um, is so as to protect their equality claims, so that uh, the rights of women now require us, also we're told, uh, to refuse accommodation with cultural and religious diversity. So it's a kind of, it's quite a strong assimilationism, that is, it's a very strong sort of sense of there are certain ways that you need to be in order to live here, right? This is the kind of way that you need to be in order to live in this country. And it's assimilation with a, with a confidence, which I think, I mean, as I say, I mean, I think there was a period in which it was hard to voice that kind of assimilationism with quite so much confidence, because it was sort of felt, you know, rather an arrogant kind of assimilationism. But the kind of, in a sense, the clothing of the rights of women uh, provides a different kind of context in which that... Um, uh, sort of assertive assimilationism uh, can be expressed. Now, um, in an article that he wrote in the uh, British Journal of uh, Sociology in 2004, uh, Christian Jocke argued that this kind of uh, retreat, which he also identified as uh, occurring uh, across uh, many parts of Europe, this retreat from kind of momentary engagement with multicultural uh, values. Um, he represented it in relatively benign terms because he argued, or certainly he argued at that point, 2004, that the kind of national identities that were being affirmed in this process weren't specifically, you know, French or Belgium or Danish or Dutch, um, but represented a much more kind of generic form of uh, contemporary liberal democracy. Um, detached from any, uh, certainly detached, he claimed, from any specifically ethnic identity. Uh, so, um, I mean, he noted uh, at the time there was, a, uh, there was a government document that was trying to spell out uh, what were the fundamental tenets of British citizenship, you know, what characterised 
uh, being British in a, in a British citizenship context. And uh, the, uh, the document basically managed to come up with uh, respecting human rights and freedoms, upholding democratic values, observing laws faithfully, and fulfilling duties and obligations, which, I mean, the idea that that's a specifically British kind of citizenship is, is obviously uh, very strange. Uh, a parallel attempt to um, determine the dominant culture in Germany um, ended up with sort of similarly generic notions, you know, that kind of German culture was defined by the norms of the Constitution, uh, the idea of Europe, which at least is a bit more specific than the British one, uh, and the equality of women actually figuring uh, explicitly within that. Now, Jacke, in his reading of that in, in sort of now, uh, sort of seven, eight years ago, there clearly was a more assertive um, claim about uh, you know, what was specific to national cultures and identities. But he, he said it was relatively benign because it wasn't grounded in some kind of exclusionary uh, ethnic uh, culture, uh, which others then could never possibly participate in, um, but was much more uh, a new assertiveness of the liberal state about its own specifically liberal culture. So a de-ethnicized national identity uh, that no longer rested on substantive cultural norms. So he was relatively confident about what was happening in that moment. Um, I'm not so sanguine, um, and I think that the way that the rights of women, equality between the sexes, plays out in this is, is, uh, is much more troubling. I mean, perhaps especially troubling if you're a feminist and you kind of feel that your defining principles are being turned to somewhat different use. So, I mean, part of, I think, what I react to in that move, in those moves, which I think are quite common across European discourses in the last... Uh, in the last period. Part of what I react to in that is the, uh, the misleading representation of Europe as the bastion of, of women's rights, and the rest of the world, or at least the, uh, the non-Western rest of the world, uh, mired in deepest uh, patriarchy. And I mean, my position on this is not, definitely not, that every country is as bad as every other country, right? I mean, I definitely think that there are certain, certain, there, there are certain conditions and that there are certain kind of... Uh, uh, developments that have occurred in some countries or some parts of the world that make life better for women, right? Um, and I think if you didn't think that, uh, you wouldn't be engaged in any kind of political attempts to change or make the world better. If you thought that everywhere was almost as bad as everywhere else, you might just as well go home and stop trying to change anything. So it's not that my position is that one country is as bad as another, and, you know, kind of, you know, so claiming superiority to some parts of the world over others is always a mistake. That's not my position. Um, but certainly setting this up as some kind of dichotomy is and can be very misleading. So if you just take one indicator, I mean, it's a kind of, uh, you know, to some extent, slightly superficial indicator. If you just take questions like the, uh, the level of women's political representation, in national legislatures around the world. Uh, Britain currently has 22% women in the House of Commons, so roughly one in five. And that is almost exactly the world average, right? I mean, it's kind of like, that is the kind of the global figure. Um, Britain currently occupies, in the league table of world countries, occupies uh, 49th position, uh, joint with the Czech Republic, Eritrea, and Uzbekistan. So a very you know, 
very diverse range of countries that have all reached much the same position, often through very different kinds of mechanisms in terms of women's political representation. And if you look at the figures throughout the world's countries, it's much of a muchness. I mean, really, there are only two kinds of outliers in the world. There are the kind of the, uh, the Nordic countries, um, Northern Europe, which, you know, stand out as kind of reaching something very close to parity between the sexes, you know, women representing closer to sort of 40% of elected politicians. And then the other outliers are the Middle East and the Pacific region, where it slips to more like kind of 10, 12%. Uh, percent. The rest of the world, really, there's not much to choose between us, right? So some of the, you know, so again, just to reiterate, my position is not that, you know, conditions for women are all the same wherever you are in the world. But I think some of the kind of the rather simplistic kind of claims about certain parts of the world as being the bastions of women's rights and gender equality uh, really don't stand up very much to, uh, um, uh, to, to scrutiny. So that's one of my worries about what, what Jopke represents as a, just a relatively benign assertion that in some parts of the world we care about the rights of women. Um, I think this kind of you know, leads to a kind of complacency, which is problematic. Uh, but also, of course, part of what's going on here is the use of certain kinds of rights in order to deny others. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the way in which, uh, in particular, in the example I've talked about so far, um, the way in which equal rights between the sexes is used to basically trump what has previously been quite a kind of strong commitment to the right to practice your religion as you see fit is really quite extraordinary. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, some serious kinds of issues there. Now, I'm not, uh, in what I want to say for the, the rest of my talk, I don't actually want to carry on with what I think is uh, a very much discussed uh, issue about, um, about the veil. Uh, but I want to look at uh, a less uh, fully explored illustration of these kinds of developments that I think are quite characteristic around European discourses around cultural diversity and immigration, which is the question about family reunification policies and the issue of forced marriage. Um, now, over the years, as uh, countries in Europe have increasingly... Um, restricted the possibilities for migration. Um, one of the kind of the main routes that still remains through which people can uh, move uh, to various countries in Europe from outside is through family, broadly family reunification. Uh, that is, if uh, citizens within Europe uh, can bring to Europe um, children or spouses or fiancés, um, and that that's one route in which uh, people can move to Europe, as, all, as so many of the, uh, the other kinds of routes to migration have been closed down. Um, in uh, just one recent figure, uh, in 2007, a family reunion, which as I say is, is mostly its... Um, citizens bringing spouses or fiancés or bringing um, <coughs> uh, children, uh, minor children, uh, to come and live with them in Europe. In 2007, family reunion made up the largest category of long-term migration in 13 out of 17 European countries. Uh, Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, 
France, Germany, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. And in these countries, it made up between 40 and 60% of all long-term migration flows. So family reunification, partly because of the, the that it's become harder uh, to get uh, um, entry visas through other routes, has become increasingly one of the main ways in which uh, migration takes place into, into Europe. Now, those figures alone, might you might say, well, that's explanation enough as to why there has been across Europe in the last, say, particularly the last decade, increasing attention to and concern with uh, trying to tighten up the uh, regulations around family reunification. Uh, but there are two features of the kinds of restrictions that have been introduced, uh, again, across countries across Europe, that are particularly significant to me. I mean, and the first is the, the role played by uh, worries about forced marriage. And then related to that, the role played by notions of national culture uh, and needing to uh, achieve certain kinds of integration conditions. So just um, just just to sort of uh, focus then on uh, on the question of forced marriage. Um, now, a surprisingly, I mean, I, I, I was quite surprised when I it took me a while to notice this that there's a surprisingly large category of the marriages that take place between European and non-European spouses fit the, uh, the male order bride image of um, young women from uh, Thailand or the Philippines agreeing to marry older men from Europe. And that's actually quite a lot of the, uh, the entry visas associated with um, allowing people access to Europe for the purposes of marriage actually fit that kind of pattern. Those older men, of course, are from the ethnic majority. Um, in the political discourse around family migration, uh, the main focus of attention has not been on that particular kind of category of family um, spousal migration, family reunification. Um, it's the main focus of attention has been European citizens from an ethnic minority um, who are seeking to marry some, somebody from their country of origin. So in Germany, it would be German citizens of Turkish origin who are seeking to bring in uh, spouses or fiancés from Turkey. Uh, in the uh, case of the UK, it would be British citizens of South Asian origin who are seeking to bring in spouses or fiancés from uh, mostly Bangladesh or Pakistan. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of both official and uh, political suspicion uh, that these are just marriages of convenience. Uh, in other words, that, um, uh, that basically, in a sense, people are uh, selling uh, wedding certificates uh, you know, as, a kind of, as a route to uh, enable people to uh, migrate to, uh, to countries in Europe where otherwise they wouldn't get entry visas. Now, since the uh, late 1990s in particular, that worry about bogus marriages has been increasingly superseded in the policy discourses by um, concerns about forced marriage, right? And that, that is the concern that quite a lot of these marriages uh, may involve particularly young women from uh, various parts of Europe being, being forced by their families um, to agree to marriage with, with strangers from 
their family's um, country of origin. Um, uh, either because this is seen as a way of keeping them within their own original culture, um, you know, ensuring that they, they, they remain true to you know, Turkish culture or Bangladeshi culture or whatever, uh, or as a way of enabling a family member uh, outside of Europe to get access to citizenship. And in the context of that, uh, increasing, part, increasing numbers of the European countries have introduced uh, quite tight uh, restrictions on these family reunifications or spousal migrations, um, which have been particularly figured as a way of protecting young people from the dangers of forced marriage. So just, just to give uh, three examples, and it's not, these are not the only three countries that have introduced them. In, in Denmark, um, which was uh, Denmark in uh, 2002 introduced what is seen as the kind of the, uh, in a sense, the most um, uh, restrictive, well, not just in a sense, it is the most restrictive um, regulation in relation to this, um, introduced uh, an age requirement of 24. That is, uh, if, you were, uh, if you were seeking to bring in, I mean, you can get married if you're a Danish citizen and you're marrying someone within Denmark or within the rest of Europe, you can get married and you can live together at the age of 18, no problem. Um, but if you, are, if you are a Danish citizen seeking to marry somebody from outside Europe and outside the Nordic countries, uh, then you've got to, uh, but you have to be 24. Um, so a, a kind of very, uh, very much higher uh, rate of maturity uh, for people marrying spouses from outside Europe. The argument at least partly being that um, this would be a way of ensuring that young people in Denmark are not being uh, put under impossible pressure to marry people they do not want to marry uh, from their parents' country of origin. And that, you know, by the time you're 24, the chances are you'd be able to resist that pressure. At the age of 18, you might not. Um, so Denmark introduced the um, age requirement of 24, which, as I say, compares with 18 if you marry somebody uh, within the European Union, uh, plus an attachment requirement, and that's where the kind of the, uh, the national culture aspect comes in, that needing to demonstrate that uh, the couple have a stronger combined attachment established through you know, where they've lived at various periods in their lives to Denmark than to any other country. So you need to kind of you need to establish not that you're ethnically Danish, right? I mean, none of this is framed in terms of what your ethnic uh, sort of characteristics are. But you need to establish that you are, in some significant sense, Danish. Uh, in 2010, uh, Denmark also added a language requirement um, needing to pass a, te a basic test in Danish in order to get to access. In the UK, uh, well, the UK in a way, in a way was uh, sort of started earlier than all this, because in the 1980s um, and 90s, uh, UK immigration uh, had what was called the primary purpose rule, um, which meant that uh, if you were um, seeking an entry visa in order to uh, join a spouse or a potential spouse in the UK, you have to prove that marriage was the primary purpose of your migration, uh, not just to get a work permit or you know, just to get a chance to live in the country which had better welfare benefits and so on. 
Uh, and the application of that primary purpose rule was absolutely racist in its application. The only people who, whose marriages were ever questioned, whether there was ever any kind of you know, attempt to kind of sort of establish what is the primary purpose, uh, were people who were, it was basically it was used aimed for uh, people coming from South Asia. That was abolished in 1997. The incoming Labour government, one of its first acts was to abolish this, which had been widely recognised as racist in its application, if not in the, the letter of the law. Uh, but then, uh, not long after that, again, through more the focus on forced marriage than just the kind of the bogus marriage timeline, um, the UK in 2003 uh, introduced a minimum age of 18. The UK has rather uh, liberal marriage policies in which you're able to get married at the age of 16. Um, and it's not such a bad idea to say that you should be at least 18 before you bring in a spouse from anywhere. But, um, so in 2003, the minimum age was raised to 18 if you are trying to bring in a spouse from outside the European Union. You can bring in somebody from anywhere in the European Union at you know, 16, 17, no problem, well, any age, because there's, there's sort of freedom of movement. Uh, in 2008, uh, the minimum age for both the citizen in Britain and the fiancé stroke spouse was raised to 21, so a very big gap between what you could do if you just married within Europe and what you could do if you were seeking to marry outside of Europe. And it, there was uh, just recently, in October last year, uh, a ruling by the um, Supreme Court uh, which declared that particular age limit of 21 incompatible with the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. And I'll, I'll, I'll say something about that a little bit. Um, the UK also, 2010, introduced a language requirement, so for the first time you actually have to demonstrate um, before, uh, you know, the kind of the qualification for uh, entry visa, um, some basic facility in English. Germany, uh, very similar kinds of moves. Um, Germany, in 2007, uh, an income requirement for the sponsor, so the German citizen had to demonstrate, uh, you know, a sufficient level of income so that the incoming spouse wouldn't be dependent on welfare benefits within Germany. Uh, a 21-age minimum uh, for sponsor and incoming spouse, uh, which presumably can now be challenged through the uh, courts as the British uh, regulation was, um, and a language requirement for the incoming spouse, which, which, which basically requires you have to kind of take German uh, classes in your country of origin. And, and one of the problems is that, you know, that there isn't actually easy access to German classes in all countries uh, that the spouses are coming from, um, you know, rather than the idea. I mean, it's not the idea that, you know, if you are living in a country, you ought to learn the language, but that actually even to get the chance to get in, you've got to demonstrate your, um, your capacity to integrate. Now, one, one interesting feature of this, which was just... Uh, sort of my attention was drawn to this relatively recently just by uh, reading a, a recent uh, PhD thesis. Um, one interesting feature of this is that the rights of some citizens uh, now become less than the rights of transients or new migrants. So, for example, the, uh, the legislation in the Netherlands, that the minimum age for family reunification, that is for... Uh, no, that's right. This is, this, this is the, yeah, the minimum age for migrants to uh, 
the Netherlands who are bringing with them existing spouses. So if you're kind of like moving to the Netherlands for work purposes and you're already married and you're bringing with you an existing spouse, the minimum age is 18. So these are for people who aren't Dutch citizens, right? That they're kind of moving to the Netherlands, but they're able to bring their spouses with them. Whereas the minimum age for family formation, that is existing um, Dutch citizens seeking to bring in a fiancé or spouse from outside European Union, is now 21. So very interestingly, if you're actually a Dutch citizen, uh, you could actually have fewer rights in terms of the age at which you are able to marry and live with somebody um, than if you are simply a migrant into the Netherlands, which is a very strange shift in the uh, notion of citizenship rights. Or uh, the case of Germany, where uh, if you're a citizen of a country that has a visa-free arrangement with Germany, uh, which includes, for example, Japan. Japan has a visa-free arrangement with Germany, which means that if you are moving to, if you're Japanese and you're moving to Germany uh, to work there, um, you can take your um, your spouse, your family with you, no problem. You don't need to kind of apply for any kind of entry uh, uh, requirements. You don't have to establish that uh, your spouse will be learning German. Uh, you don't have to integrate uh, with the uh, the German community. But if you're a German citizen, <laughs> but of Turkish origin, or just a German citizen who is seeking to marry somebody from outside the European Union, um, then, uh, then uh, you have to wait until your spouse uh, can pass this uh, language test. So it's kind of a, it's quite a strange uh, development when you think about it, that the kind of the, uh, the kind of the initiatives actually leading to a kind of context in which citizens could actually have, in certain contexts, fewer rights than those who are, in a sense, passing through or who are uh, relatively new migrants. Um, that's one kind of striking feature of it. Uh, the other sort of important issue, of course, is, is the issue of proportionality. Now, forced marriage is undoubtedly an issue and a phenomenon. Um, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that uh, young people, and this is young men as well as young women, uh, being put under enormous pressure by their families, particularly, uh, this seems to be uh, the case in the kind of the, the UK cases, particularly where the families are worried that their children are being swept up in a kind of, um, you know, the kind of the world of, you know, you know, drink and drugs and kind of crazy behaviour that they want to protect their young children from, particularly in that context that young people are being put under incredible pressure to marry the safe candidate from back home who they've never met, they've possibly got nothing in common with, um, uh, and you know the family may also be being put under pressure to do that because it provides a kind of route into uh, you know, access to employment. Uh, in the UK. So there's no doubt that, uh, that there is a serious issue about forced marriage. Right? Um, but there's also a kind of very important issue about proportionality, and that's what the kind of the recent Supreme Court judgment was about. So uh, the, the two cases that were taken uh, under the, um, uh, the sort of Human Rights Convention uh, to the, uh, the UK Supreme Court, um, one of them involved um, uh, a Chilean national who was married to a British citizen. The British citizen was, was female. She, she was only uh, 17 when they got married. 
um, uh, but she wasn't able to kind of bring her, her husband to actually live in the UK. Um, you know, and it, you know, eventually they had to, um, uh, they had to go and live in, uh, together in Chile. Uh, the other was um, uh, the UK citizen was, was male, and he was applying to bring his Pakistani um, uh, fiance uh, over to the UK. That was in fact an arranged marriage, uh, though uh, entirely um, voluntary marriage on both sides. Uh, both of the both of those were under 21, and they were refused uh, an entry visa. Now the, the judgment when the the Supreme judgment that that this restriction was kind of um, you know at odds with the rights of people to you know, live with their spouses, um, basically stressed that very little effort had been made to establish either the extent or the risk of forced marriage. And I think this is one of the things that people who have done a lot of work in this area have particularly stressed, that there's been a lot of discourse about forced marriage and the problem of forced marriage and the way in which this requires us to introduce various restrictions in terms of uh, migration regulation. But in fact, governments across Europe are not putting money <laughs> into establishing either the extent of forced marriage or indeed into establishing the kind of support systems that might actually serve to address the problem. I, I, to, to be fair, the UK government has done more on this than, um, I would say, any other government in, in Europe uh, in terms of establishing some kind of support measures. But in terms of trying to establish the, um, uh, the real extent or the risk or how effective these regulations might be in deterring it, um, you know, very little attempt to address this. This is not uh, evidence-based policy making. Um, and as the in the judgment, um, just to quote, uh, the regulation keeps a very substantial number of bona fide young couples apart or forced to live outside the UK, vastly exceeding the number of forced marriages that would be deterred. On any view, the measure was a sledgehammer, but the Secretary of State has not attempted to identify the size of the nut. Now, I think, I think an important part of the, um, the discourse around forced marriage, and this is something that's been particularly um, prominent in some of the feminist literature around this, is the differential attribution of agency, by which I mean that a lot of the kind of the ways in which these restrictions on um, the movement of people uh, into Europe for the purposes of marriage have been justified has been very much through an idea that, that we need to protect young, it's always framed in terms of young girls, though as I say, young, young men are also um, at, at risk of being forced into marriages. We, we need to protect young girls from ethnic minority backgrounds who live in a context where they are much more at the mercy of their powerful, overbearing, patriarchal families and are much less able to resist those pressures. So there's a very strong image of the kind of the, you know, the kind of the, the sort of submissive, passive young female who really can't stand up to these very overbearing patriarchs. Uh, whereas the, um, the kind of the, the young people from the ethnic majority, there's very little protection on the young people from the ethnic majority if they decide at the age of 16 to marry. You know, whatever bad lot they might decide to marry, 
there's, there's very little, you know, there's very little kind of sense that they need to be protected from the terrible mistakes that they're about to make. So there's a very kind of differential attribution of agency, with, you know, with the kind of the wielding of all kinds of cultural stereotypes that are going into that, and that's kind of I think part of the uh, the background problem that's um, that's at issue here. Now that that differential attribution of agency. Uh, links, of course, to the more assertive nationalism, because part of, what, um, part of what justifies that more assertive nationalism, the more assertive nationalism which is saying, you must become more like us, right? That kind of thread of a more assertive nationalism that we're seeing in so much of the discourse across Europe at the moment. Part of what justifies that is, of course, the conviction that the we, that the kind of the, you know, the national cultures are more egalitarian, more tolerant, more liberal, uh, more democratic uh, than the rest. So, um, again, this is an example that's often kind of referred to in the literature, the kind of the particularly um, uh, notable uh, uh, civic integration uh, initiative in the Netherlands, where uh, if you're kind of uh, applying for uh, entry to the Netherlands from outside the European Union, uh, you, you, have to, um, uh, you have to demonstrate, you have to pass the uh, the Dutch language test uh, administered in your country of origin, um, but you also have to pass uh, a civic integration test, which involves, I don't know if it still does, but certainly when it was kind of, uh, uh, certainly sort of introduced in the 2006-2007, involves uh, a video uh, featuring scenes of nude beaches and a gay couple kissing, right, so that the kind of, very much the images you know, this is what we do in the Netherlands, and if you're not able to live with this, if you can't cope with nude, nude beaches, and if you can't cope with gay people kissing, then you're not somebody who's going to be able to adjust here. Uh, which, of course, is a little galling for um, those Dutch gays who have, uh, you know, experienced homophobia uh, in the Netherlands, and it's a bit galling for them to see their activities now advertised as a kind of, like, the essence of um, Netherlands national identity. Again, to come back to the point that you know, I, I kind of tried to stress earlier, I'm not saying that there are kind of no differences between national cultures. I don't myself like the term national cultures. I think it's kind of like deeply misleading in all kinds of ways. But uh, I mean, I'm certainly not uh, claiming that there are no differences between the kind of the dominant attitudes in, say, uh, say if you take the dominant attitudes in Thailand towards transgender or transsexual people are different from the dominant attitudes towards transgender or transsexual people in Britain. Uh, generally they're more tolerant in, in Thailand on that particular issue. Um, I'm not saying that there are um, no differences between say the UK and Iran in uh, predominant uh, beliefs about sex outside marriage. I mean, clearly there are differences, and there's kind of evidence, you know, all the time of the kind of the very uh, severe impact that those differences can have on people, on the lives of uh, men and women who, um, who break the, uh, who transgress uh, in, in the Iranian context. Um, there are clearly differences between the predominant attitudes in the UK and Afghanistan, say, as regards women's independence. So I'm not saying that there are no differences, right? I do myself find the idea of wrapping that up in some neat notion of a national culture uh, very unhelpful and, you know, doesn't kind of like uh, 
uh, convey uh, very much about the, um, the sort of the, the range of positions and uh, the persistence of extremely um, punitive and conservative um, beliefs and attitudes in a context where the predominant ones might be of a different nature and so on. Um, so I find the claiming of these as part of the national makeup very unconvincing. Um, you know, but my, my kind of, the point I'm trying to stress is not that it's a complete mistake to represent um, uh, differences between countries in this way, but I do think the particular way that the rights of women are being played out in, in this moment of the reframing of a kind of national identity which feels released into an ability to be much more assertively assimilationist than I think was the case even just 10 years ago. And the way in which this phenomenon is kind of acting itself out uh, across most parts of contemporary Europe. Um, I think the particular role that the, the rights of women are playing within this um, is, is deeply problematic and is particularly troubling uh, if you're someone who has kind of wanted to, um, whose, whose kind of, you know, whose political project <laughs> through much of her life has been precisely about trying to kind of fight for the rights of women. Um, so that's really what I wanted to say. So. Many thanks for the presentation. Now we have 45 minutes for questions and answers. Would you like to take them one more? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, let's, yeah, let's start on that. May I ask actually which countries you consider um, as the most liberate in terms of uh, uh, female rights? <coughs> countries in the world. Just a personal opinion. We consider the most liberate. Well, it's a very difficult one. I mean, I mean, I would say in terms of the um, the social uh, structures that most enable um, equality between the sexes, probably some of the welfare regimes of Northern Europe have proved to be most beneficial in that respect, in the sense of providing a kind of context in which uh, it's possible for men and women alike to participate in caring, men and women alike to participate in work, uh, women, as I've said, having a much higher proportion in terms of the political representation of the country. But, um, and a kind of discourse about gender equality being much more prominent, but actually the, the Scandinavian countries uh, are also countries which have a very um, strong uh, gender segregation in the labour force, right? so that you get women working in women's sectors and men working in men's sectors. So, I mean, if I had to kind of pick out, you know, countries where I think there's, you know, a lot of good things going on, I'd probably pick out the, the Scandinavian and Nordic countries, but I wouldn't sort of say that things were, were sorted out there. And then what's very interesting about that example is that, I mean, it feeds back very much into the kind of things I'm talking about here, is that almost precisely because those countries have um, a very, uh, uh, say if you take Denmark, uh, which has kind of quite a strong sense of itself as an egalitarian country in terms of the relations between the sexes, um, that then becomes 
that then contributes to an even more assertive kind of assimilationism about, you know, so why can't you be like us? Which then means a real closure towards uh, the kinds of uh, arguments that are being made by uh, non-Danish women in Denmark or Danish women of non-Danish origin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it's... Um, I'm sorry, I'm actually probably quite a lay woman rather than women um, in terms of the, the subject, but I was wondering, I'm actually interested in pursuing my own research on that subject of uh, gender equality as much as other matters. I was wondering, in terms of the definition of the tolerance and obviously equality in terms of gender, um, is there any sort of global measure that would describe it, I mean, across, across the globe? Is there any sort of... Uh, and statistic, because obviously the gender uh, yeah, yeah. discrimination or equality will be very much culturally related, and obviously that would break the issues of sexual um, activities, probably, pardon me, hippie evolution in the 60s, pardon me, for kind of perhaps slightly, um, slightly um, more. Um, well, uh, to illustrate it perhaps why. But uh, I'm just wondering in terms of, is there any sort of defined measure I'm talking about institutions who are dealing with female matters and uh, gender definition on a daily basis? Well, the, 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 Uni the United Nations does a, a comparative index, um, mm -hmm. which includes, um, I'm sure there are other people here who can kind of fill me in more, but I mean, it includes measures like, uh, there are health measures like, um, levels of infant, uh, levels of maternal uh, mortality, so number of women who die in childbirth. So, you know, what's the degree of kind of security for women uh, in terms of their health in childbirth? Uh, measures about political representation. Measures, measures about women's uh, uh, engagement in the paid labour force and the levels of pay that they get relative to men. So there's there's an index which the which the which the uh, which the UN operates, which which sort of produces kind of you know, a measure of where, you know, so countries are scored on, on this index. But it's a, it's a very rough and ready measure. Um, and, uh, and I don't think it really captures the more, um, I suppose, what people are talking about when they talk about the more kind of cultural aspects of it in terms of the attitudes that we have. Um, you know, so that, that's one kind of measure. And, you have, uh, across Europe, there's a kind of European social attitudes, which measures uh, over, over a period of years the, um, the views that people might have on things like, uh, do you think women with young children should stay at home to look after the children? Um, or do you think in times of, of high unemployment uh, that it's more important for men to get a job than for women to get a job? Uh, you know, so these are attempting to measure not so much uh, policies and institutions, but particular attitudes. Are those questions, pardon me for interrupting, are those questions actually asked? Yes, so yes. However, I mean, yes, what yes, is yes. more important? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and there's been, you know, quite an encouraging shift over the, over the years in which those questions are, are asked, so that, uh, you know, in a more egalitarian direction. And I've got a number of uh, hands up here. Okay, so... Thank you for your fascinating presentation, actually. I have very three short questions. First, do we have a number of women who have been forced into marriage in the UK? And second one, with the woman issue, religion and woman issue, 
actually, are they new measures to stop migration and also to force assimilation? Or really, they are a problem? Okay. Uh, my third question, actually, you, in your introduction, also your condition, you said that that I cannot overlap all countries. Okay? There are differences, of course. Yes, yeah. yes I, took, I agree with you. There are differences in the about the issue, the, the tire. But there are similarities all countries in the world. They have problems with the woman issue. They have inequality as well. In the UK, and you just perfectly give the Denmark example as well. Yeah. And from that sense, we, we can say that actually all countries in the world are similar about the inequality between men and female. There are different issues, of course, definitely, when you look at the sex between Iran and UK. But from the middle-aged Iranian woman, much be in comfort position than middle-aged UK woman, because middle-aged Iranian woman can be looked after by her family, but middle-aged UK woman has to work and also has to look after children as well. Yeah, well, um, on yes, I mean, I think there's no country in the world where there is equality sexes, no question about that. Um, on on the, the figure about forced marriage, for many years the UK government has operated with a, um, a, a sort of an estimate of a thousand people a year at risk of forced marriage and this kind of figure appeared somewhere and was repeated in various documents for many years. There have been some recent studies like in the last uh, 18 months which suggests something rather higher than that, um, you know, possibly more like kind of uh, five or six thousand. But, but these are these are figures that are very difficult to um, uh, you know, to, to get access to. I mean, yeah. So so that that's that's the answer to that. In terms of so, is there a problem with religion? Um, if you mean specifically in terms of the question of um, uh, that it's a problem if women uh, are in a, in a public space uh, covering their face with a niqab, right? Is that a problem, right? Um, well, uh, I think if they were insisting on having their passport photos taken like that, that seems to me a problem. There are good reasons why we ask people to show their faces when they're having a passport photo taken. Um, I myself uh, have some sympathy with the view that it's a problem if you are uh, teaching young children in a primary school that actually the kind of the face-to-face -face engagement is actually quite important in that kind of work. But that might be that that might be something that I'd be open to. Uh, argument about, but I find it very hard to see what is the problem <laughs> about people walking down the street um, in, you know, yeah, so. Um, thank you for your presentation. I missed the first five minutes, so this may... You that was the crucial part, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you felt that there were definitely some differences, so this overlaps a little bit, but there were some differences between kind of national cultures, even though that's not a particularly yeah, helpful yeah. term. And you mentioned this idea of this kind of legislation being a sledgehammer, we don't even know what kind of size of yes, nuts we're dealing yeah. with. And I just wondered whether you thought that there was scope for 
any form of legislation on this kind of front where we're, I guess, trying to protect a vulnerable group of women and whether you feel that, I mean, yeah. if there's legislation is by its very nature broad, you can't be forever looking at the exceptions. So there's, by its nature, a kind of sense of a blanket, we're going to define this as this. Do you think there's any room for that? Or, for example, in the, in the situation of this, these kinds of marriages, would you say there shouldn't be any legislation that restricts this in any way, and actually it should be exactly the same? Okay, yeah. Um, so, a number of things. One is, I think, to start making differential regulations, um, so treating people in different categories in terms of questions like the age at which they can get married, to me is always problematic. I mean, that's kind of discriminatory. And you'd have to have very, very strong justifications for doing that. I kind of quite like what, uh, uh, I mean, in France, where for many years in France, they've had differential age, they've had differential age in marriage for uh, uh, women and men, that uh, young women could get married at 16 and young men only at 18. And partly in the context of thinking through worries about forced marriage, they just raised the whole uh, legal age of marriage in France to 18. Right? So, you know, male, female, uh, French, non-French, uh, you know. At least there's no discrimination in that. Um, it, but in terms of your more kind of, uh, your, your wider question about what kind of role does legislation play in this, I think one of, one of the things that strikes me is that in... in is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of symbolic activity around legislation. Um, so uh, on both uh, both issues to do with um, like making forced marriage a criminal act, as if it hasn't been criminal. You know, I mean, it's of course it's criminal to force people into marriage, and there's lots of kind of laws that through which, which enable you to um, uh, prosecute people, and they've been on the statute books for many years. There's a lot of kind of um, a, sort of symbolic gestures um, when really what you want is you want more money going into uh, people who are going around the schools, making it clear to uh, to young people what kind of avenues there are for them to pursue if they feel that their families are putting them under underbearable pressure. You need kind of uh, funding for, uh, in the kind of the, the worst cases, for accommodation for people who've simply had to leave home because that's the only way they can escape those pressures. You know, it, it, to my mind, what mostly what you need is the funding of quite extensive support systems. And there's a lot of kind of, it's very cheap to pass a law. Um, so it's not, it's not that my view is that you can't do things through legislation, but I do think this is a field where um, legislation is used in a much more kind of, as a sort of symbolic and very cheap way of kind of uh, identifying but not actually addressing uh, an issue. And it's quite significant that so little funding goes into establishing what the kind of the extent of forced marriage is uh, or actually providing uh, the funding for the various measures that might actually protect people who are indeed at you know at danger of being forced into marriages. So, so that would be my uh, my response. Thank you. So, yes. Thank you for your. One comment. I thought it was particularly interesting. Yes. 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 Y
them is that they, they both have a certain kind of complacency about how far we've got, uh, you know, just, just take the UK as an example, how far we've got in terms of addressing problems of gender inequality. And, you know, I mean, in my lifetime, there have been lots of things that have got a lot better, right? I mean, there's no question about that. Um, but the way in which that generates a kind of complacency obviously feeds both into the contrast that one makes with terrible kind of conditions elsewhere and one sense that um, now we can kind of play around with, for example, um, much more kind of uh, sexist advertising than was the case in the 70s and 80s when there could be quite a, a strong politics about kind of like, you know, addressing some of those kinds of issues. So that kind of um, being able to kind of like, in a sense, retreat on a whole sort of set of issues because we've got so much sorted out. So I think there's a kind of complacency which which is, you know, at work in both of them. I'm more agnostic about to what extent you could establish a causal connection. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so thank you for the talk. It was really was great to hear. Um, and I wrote in my last year, I wrote two papers. One was on forced migration, the other was on um, on forced marriage, specifically right. within a girl-child context. Um, and so my question is actually in relation to migration and women, specifically within the UK. And I don't know if you can speak more to this, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Um, so my understanding from my research is that a lot of the times if a woman is being brought in, let's say a, a man migrates first, um, and a woman's being brought in as his spouse, um, with that comes the status of, of a, I think, a, a residency, but not as a permanent resident. And often, um, from my again, from my, this is from the research that I did, I, I found that there was a considerable um, increase in abuse against women um, in, in a migration and in a forced migration sense specifically. And so I'm wondering um, if you know more about this idea of if a, if a woman was to leave a man, for example, after, she, after she's migrated, often she's forced by the UKPA, which is the United Kingdom Border Agency. Um, to go back to her home country. And there have been so many cases where women have been, have been forced to, to leave and to return to their home countries and to face further persecution and abuse. And do you know if the legislation is changing at all or if there's any... It's, it's actually just, just on that point, it's recently got worse. I mean, there was a period in which there was quite a lot of kind of quite effective agitation by women's groups who made, who made the point that, you know, you know, almost like a bigger problem than kind of like stopping forced marriage is what you do about abusive marriages in which the women, um, women or, you know, I mean, it might be that the woman is the kind of, well, whichever is the one who's kind of originally in the country and uh, who came in, that the, that the woman cannot leave the marriage um, without, you know, immediately being deported. Um, 
but the marriage has become extremely abusive. And there was a lot of, of successful agitation by women's groups, which then managed to get the government, the UK government agreed um, the sort of domestic uh, violence um, terminology that was used, which meant that uh, if you could establish that you were actually at risk of, of serious abuse, you could get independent rights to stay in the country, independent of your spouse. One of the problems there was that you had, you had to produce extraordinary evidence yeah. of this kind of domestic violence, and it was quite hard to achieve that. But much more recently, the, the most recent kind of proposal of that around... Um, uh, immigration regulations actually backtracks on that and uh, means that people have to stay together in their marriage for longer in order then to qualify for independent rights of residence within the country. So moving to three years rather than two years, um, people have got that right. I'm a political theorist. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think that uh, I mean that's been an issue that people have been very conscious of, and, and there have been periods in which there was a uh, there was a sort of successful concession that was um, that was achieved, which my which has been, I think, recently uh, reversed. Well, of course, we are doing our analysis, but um, I always ensure that the national government is going to say that this is something that's not better than the economy of the government. But it is also true that there is a contract that is independent for non Muslim countries. So uh, I just wonder how you see this problem, the, the problem specifically where the situation so, of course, I, I think there is a dilemma that, uh, on one hand, of course, it's uh, important to be critical of Western societies or modernity. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we can benefit from it. And also, we have to also critical of this is of more just not accepting from the lenses of. Would you raise the voice, please? Yes, yes, yes. So, I just. Um, yes, so that's basically. Yeah. I want to just quickly repeat what you were saying. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, uh, no, I'm just saying that uh, it's also important to be critical of yes. the, yeah. of, of patriarchy. One should be critical of patriarchy wherever one finds it, and certainly one shouldn't get into, in order to kind of, in order to kind of like be able to pursue the, the critique that I want to pursue of the what I see as the abuse of gender equality ideas to, to achieve something else. One shouldn't fall into the trap of then somehow saying uh, there's no difference between you know things. That, look how bad things are here. You know how can one say that they're so much worse there? Um, I mean, I think that that's a kind of trap that people sometimes fall into, and that's not the kind of thing that I want to take. But um, but in terms of what's the kind of the best uh, the best way forward, right? Um, I mean, I think that the uh, well, first of all, the idea of simply kind of blocking movement between countries, which is what these restrictions on spousal migration are doing, uh, that doesn't seem to be a particularly effective way of dealing with problems of patriarchy anywhere in the world. Um, movement between countries is, is very often one of the ways in which people get the, uh, the confidence to challenge certain kinds of assumptions that have been made within families about how one should organise one's life. 
Um, so in terms of kind of what's a, what's a way forward, that, you know, just simply trying to block movement between countries doesn't seem to me to be particularly imaginative as a way of addressing that. But I think also that the, this goes back to the kind of what I was saying about the differential attribution of agency. It seems to me that, that initiatives need to be much more focused on where there is evidence of a problem right? and what you can actually provide to people who are experiencing the kind of uh, patriarchal controls, the kind of restrictions on their movements, you know, what kind of support, advice, uh, networks can you provide to people who are experiencing that, rather than presuming that people are experiencing it and then kind of acting on a presumption which you haven't bothered to test out by any kind of evidence. So, you know, so, so generally, it's, uh, I mean, I think I agree with the spirit of what you're saying, but I think that, that the direction one should take is in terms of identifying where there are indeed problems and what kind of solutions one could uh, one could provide for those. I think this is a more theoretical question. Quite handy from the perspective of the status quo of the supposedly feminist argument can be you know, used to justify racist you know, um, action. Um, do you think the problem is with the sort of importation of quality feminism alone around the world, and so there's no other way of imagining what something would be about than you know, a very sort of limited notion that women should be just like men? Yes, well, you see, I don't think equality feminism is just about women being just like men. I mean, I'm not going to let go of the notion of equality, as, which to me, it remains an absolutely central part of what a feminist politics is about. I mean, so that I don't, I don't want to kind of address it by, by saying, well, look, you know, feminism is not properly captured by the notion of equality. I mean, clearly it's not captured by the notion that women should be like men, and that women should be the same as men. Absolutely, but but the the notion of equality between the sexes to me remains the most resonant part of what a feminist politics is about. So I definitely don't want to kind of lose that. But it does seem as though that's the language which is precisely most vulnerable, precise to this kind of, uh, um, in a sense, taking it out of its context um, in ways that that then turn it to other kinds of purposes. So. Um, thank you, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I'm interested in your general argument, the broad argument about the use of patriarchal images in other cultures as a way to kind of entrench from multiculturalism yes. and migration and handling down on migration. And I think I'm really interested in, in, in relation to asylum claims, you know, the process of claiming asylum and granting um, yes. asylum. And the way in which, within that context, is often a rarefication of cultural differences or condemnation of yes. cultural practices, and I think this is a clear like forced genital crossing or female genital crossing you know, on a yeah. so. um, And that then serves as the, as the basis for successful asylum claims. So in a way, it's a kind of opposite process that's occurring where um, patriarchy is being invoked to let people claim asylum and to you know, be allowed to enter the country. <coughs> And often that's also underpinned by you know, Western liberal feminist notions of, of you know, um, agency, the fact that, that women who have been granted asylum you know, exercising their agency. Yes. And that in itself is kind of part of the feminist agenda. But I think that's so it's just a comment. Yes, yes. And I, I mean, and I think that's one of the most difficult balances for people working in that field to manage to pull off. But if, if, only, if, we only, if, we, 
if we weren't working in a context in which people were so quick to uh, sort of comfort themselves with either cultural or national stereotypes, then the fact that you're drawing attention to the very, you know, severe um, uh, sort of uh, violence and threats that are being practiced on somebody in country X wouldn't have that kind of consequence in which you'd immediately say, oh, country X, you know, you know. There's something about the way in which we, we are so ready to take bits of evidence and kind of turn them into a kind of, you know, a definition of a whole kind of culture or a whole nationality. That, that means it's very difficult to sort of weave your way through this territory without what you say somehow acting as evidence for that. I mean, one ought to be able to, you know, you know, speak out forcibly against any forms of kind of inequality, injustice, uh, violence, uh, you know, without any concern that in doing so you are feeding certain kinds of racist, cultural, national stereotypes. But all the time, we're in a world in which, you know, that's the way in which our, our words are heard. So it kind of means that there's, there's this kind of, you know, very challenging balance that people have to try and uh, establish. I just thought it was very interesting what you said about um, your, your um, I should say, questioning of ideas of national identity or national ethnicity. And I'm just thinking of my own home country, Ireland, in 2004, it held a national referendum on the rights of children born of non, I say non-Irish yes, parents yes. To, to hold Irish citizenship. And it really shocked the academic world, I think not just in Ireland, but further afield, when it was overwhelmingly voted to change the constitution so that it denied the right of children for non-Irish descent to the yes. common. And I just thought, and I think everyone has led people to think that it seems to the idea that the passing of ethnicity or the passing of nation seems to be a little bit Exaggerated, considering yes. something premature celebration. Yes, yes. And, and you know, you did have Irish academics saying, "What do we take the Irish state to be racist? Is it a racist state? Is it a racist nation?" And it, it, it's led to a huge turmoil in terms of that outcome of that referendum. And I just wondered what your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think. Um, I mean, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, interestingly, see, even in that context, I mean, I think that that people try to find a way of framing that which takes it away from a self-evident form of ethnic nationalism. So people talk about, um, or people give the material arguments about kind of people getting access to our welfare benefits or our education system or what have you, just like passing through Ireland and then they get Irish citizenship and so on. So that, that people find some, people try to find a language which doesn't look like the classical um, ethnic nationalism, um, but but as you say, it's very hard to see what else it is. And it frames very much the debates were about the rights of women yes. and slightly the symbiotic yes. nature of women as a nation and that multiculturalism of diversifying and was that a threat to Irish ethnic nationality that you had. I suppose women of other diverse backgrounds now being Irish, and it, it became very yes. um, conflicted. Yes. But women were at the core of that debate at that time. Family. But I think I think the point um, that, as I say, I just only started thinking myself just from reading some of the PhD pieces recently. The point about the way in which some of these these changes to immigration uh, regulations 
mean that citizens actually can have less rights than non-citizens. And you know, what's behind that is that their citizens are trying to do something that in some way reflects the fact that they have a transnational identity or they have some kind of connection with the country outside. Um, but, but they're citizens, you know, I thought, you know, weren't we supposed to be united in the belief that all citizens have the same rights? Um, in fact, it turns out not to be, not to be the case, and that non-citizens might in some context have, have actually better rights. And that, that's a very strange quirk of the, the way in which these developments are taking place. Thank you for your presentation. I'd like to ask a slightly related question. I work in international development, and I was interested to know your attitude towards international gender equality standards and international human rights standards. How international do you think they are, and to what extent are they seen as imposing Western values on other societies? Well, that's a very big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think... Um, Several things. One is uh, there's certainly there's politics around the international invocation of rights, democratic rights, liberal rights, equality rights, uh, which which is very which mirrors very much the kind of thing I'm saying about the abusive ideas of gender equality. There's definitely there's an international politics in which those ideas become um, uh, a self-justification for interventionist policies that previously one would not have thought were um, were acceptable, right? So there's a kind of, there's a mirroring there. But that, that doesn't of itself answer the question of whether I think that there might nonetheless be um, international standards. And I, I sort of, um, I mean, I think, like, I think, I mean, my, my view is that kind of people are not that different the world over. And I think rights matter to people the world over. I think the kind of the uh, you know the various rights that, that you know we tend to think of as kind of standard rights are not ones which are kind of of peculiar interest to people in some parts of the world, but of no interest to people in other parts of the world. So I, you know, I do feel that you know that most of the kind of the things that I value and that I consider important, it seems to me they're things that. You know, people all over the world also value and consider important, and in that sense, there is a kind of you know, there's a sort of there's a shared set of concerns which are um, which do have a kind of international salience. But it's also the case that you know the ideas about rights are, of course, formed in particular kind of historical geographical context. They get their kind of their particular language and their particular kind of symbolism from those. So that they're um, and they do get kind of they get wielded in a kind of uh, in, a, in a power politics on the international stage. So I mean to me, I, I mean I just want to hold both those ideas together. I want both to be able to um, identify and criticise the, uh, the way in which supposedly universal kind of rights are deployed as part of a kind of power hierarchy within the world. I want to hold on to, I mean, I think that's an important insight about the, way, the politics of rights. But I also think that, uh, I, I think it's kind of, 
think it would be rather odd to kind of, you know, to imagine that the uh, that the things that matter so much to you, you know, the kind of freedoms or the rights or the equalities that matter so much to you, don't matter to other people. I mean, that's, you know, there are very few of them that aren't kind of shared concerns. So, so yeah, so that's, um, that's too quick an answer to what is kind of one of the most difficult questions, I think. But, um, but I want to be able to say both of those things. I want both to be able to analyse the kind of the, the, the troubling politics of life, just as I want to be able to analyse the troubling course of ideas of gender equality in the contemporary debates about multiculturalism, without saying the problem is gender equality, or without saying the problem is rights. Um, you know, so, and how you, how you kind of work out a kind of coherent argument that says both of those things is, is I think, one of the challenges, which I haven't yet pulled off. Um, I'm not going to answer, uh, talk about that because there's a lot to say on uh, how southern feminists actually have been leading global the campaigns rights, uh, for global women's rights. It's not Western feminists actually that have been doing that in the last 20 years or so. So that's something worth thinking through a lot. Who's, who's been fighting for these rights and constructing them, like sexual rights, reproductive rights, etc. But I wanted to ask you about the concept of interculturality. And um, I think 2009 was declared a European year of inter intercultural dialogue, and Portugal was responsible for leading on this year. And I don't know if this concept has entered into political theory. It's very strong in Latin America, in Canada, in the US, um, in anthropology, in work on uh, working with people in the Amazon, for example, trying to grapple with ethnic diversity in Latin America, Canada, and the US. But, um, you know, we're thinking about what are our options for the future? How can we build up greater interaction? Between cultures rather than yes. multiculturalism yeah. as we all live together separately or assimilationism where you've you've all got to be like us sort of discourse maybe the French. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that this concept has taken off much since that that year of intercultural dialogue. Um, although there are <coughs> initiatives around the country. I know there's one in Belfast, it's called the Global it's developed a uh, global education network or something, and they're working on intercultural dialogue in Belfast. Um, but is it something you've encountered? And what are your thoughts about where do we go if we don't want to be assimilationist in this country? We don't want the French approach. But then people are <coughs> saying state multicultural, multicultural, multiculturalism has collapsed. Where are the debates, the political debates, about how to take forward living together? Because it's, we're clearly living together, aren't we? In yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I find the term intercultural um, kind of clumsy, and I find the term multicultural problematic because of the way that it it really does. It seems to conjure up distinct cultures, many different cultures, you know, somehow living side by side. Um, I mean, personally, I'm sticking with multiculturalism because it's kind of easier to redefine what you're 
your original term rather than adopt a, sep a separate one. But I think a lot of what people actually are trying to do under the umbrella of multiculturalism is your interculturalism in the sense of uh, very much kind of, I, I mean, what, not just how do we manage to uh, respect difference, i.e. you look over there and there's difference, but I respect it, you know, which would be retaining a kind of separation, but, you know, I sort of, I, I don't, it's, it's fine, it's okay what you're doing. Um, but very much a kind of sense of, of the kind of the ways in which uh, our different experiences enrich one another, and the ways in which sort of the kind of the shift of perspective that everyone kind of experiences in seeing things uh, through a different kind of frame. So just the shift of, expe of experience that all of us have in, in just in traveling, right? And the way in which you, the, the things that you have taken for granted, you know, you see in a different kind of, uh, a different frame. Um, I, I think that a lot of what people understand by multiculturalism is in fact that, which is much more about um, kind of a, a sort of a, a mutual uh, exchange, dialogue, engagement, rather than an idea that somehow all that multiculturalism is about is about saying, it's okay for you over there to be different from me over here. And actually, there is not a single theorist of multiculturalism, I think, who, who sees it like that. I mean, that is not the theoretical position. The theoretical position is much closer to what you're describing as the intercultural position, but using the language of, of multiculturalism. So, I, I mean, I do think that's, that's what's going on. What's, what's tended to happen is that there's been a real conflation in the political dialogues between the question of um, separation, uh, geographical separation, which I think uh, is, is a significant problem it's not so much a problem in London, you get a false image in London, but geographical separation of distinct communities is a problem in many parts of Europe and in many parts of the UK, um, where it is possible for people to live much more in terms of um, lives in which their engagements are almost exclusively with people who, with whom they share similar kind of uh, historical uh, background and traditions. You know, living in London, you don't really get a sense of that. I mean, that doesn't really, that doesn't seem to be what kind of, uh, what, what most people's daily experiences. But um, there's a kind of, an odd way in which people have thought that's what multiculturalism is. As if multiculturalism about, is about saying, it's a good idea for people to live in enclaves, and uh, all that matters is that we have mutual respect for our different enclaves. And as I say, there's no position in the multicultural literature, I think, that kind of that sees that as what the sort of the, the project of multiculturalism is. Um, so I think some of it's just in the word, really. Um, Sorry, um, I'd like to ask a lot of the concepts of being introduced to the British lecture through the press, maybe things like on the base violence. Yes. Um, and do you think that this will actually make these kind of national stereotypes worse in the next five, 10, 15 years? Um, rather than just going to get worse, I guess, better. 
And just as a, as a second thing, I mean, I don't think you've obviously worked in the field a long time, but I bet if you asked uh, a secondary school teacher 15 years ago what FGM was, they wouldn't know. But then if you ask one now, they've all done the safeguarding training, they all know about female genital mutilation and how that ties in. Yeah. Is that kind of awareness of these issues driving a kind of this, well, what you're talking about really is kind of nationalism? Well, not necessarily in my view, but it depends very much on the kind of um, the kind of initiatives that different groups take around us. You know, so say on the question about um, honour-based violence, which is a kind of I mean, there you have a lot of very active women's groups who have been really pushing the agenda on this, and obviously their agenda may be somewhat different from the agenda of the national newspapers who uh, you know who might kind of like. You know, allow it to feed into much more of a kind of you know, confident, you know, we're not like that around here. Um, but I think that, I, I already think that, that, that there's been quite a successful shift in that kind of, I mean, maybe I live in a kind of rosy world where I don't really see what's going on, but I already think there's been quite a shift in relation to that. So I don't think that when people talk about honor based violence, that there's the same kind of automatic assumption that this is something that is. You know, either is peculiar to uh, you know particularly ethnically defined communities, or is general <laughs> throughout those communities. And I think you know you hear a lot of people making connections between. I mean, what is the phenomenon? You know, the extraordinary phenomenon in which men kill their children because their wives have left them. Right. I mean, the, it's, I mean, it's such an extraordinary phenomenon, which. Um, which, which it doesn't have, I mean, if it has a kind of, if it has any kind of ethnic characteristics, it's kind of, it seems to be majority white culture, but I don't think it has any kind of clear ethnic characteristics. I think people make those connections much more now than I think they did 10 years ago, in the sense of seeing there are lots of very, very troubling forms of, you know, family violence that come out in ways that, you could not believe that people would do that to their own children, right? And yet they do. And I, I, I mean, as I say, maybe I kind of like, this is just what I think, and I think everyone else thinks the way I do, but I do actually, I do actually think that there's been enough of a, not enough, but because there, there, are, there is a kind of, there's a political discourse here, and people are kind of battling over the understandings of honor-based violence, and it's not just left to the media to... Uh, tell a story in a particular kind of way. And even the media changes its story in response to recognising some of the complexities. So, so I'm more optimistic than, um, than your question um, kind of suggests that you know, <coughs> simply the kind of the, the bringing of certain kinds of issues into the kind of the, the public a, a arena. Um, as long as there are a plurality of voices that are engaged in the politics around here, it's not it's not predetermined that it will simply lead to that kind of reinforcing of certain kinds of cultural stereotypes. Um, so it's available to us to change that, and I think actually people are doing quite a lot to change and challenge that. Um, but I do think it's against this backdrop that I said before that kind of like it's it's like the default position <laughs> is is that we fall into our cultural, national, and ethnic stereotypes, and that's. Uh, Actually, my question is just fitting your last sentence. The plurality of the 
voices. different voices. Yeah. Is there any left? Because uh, feminists and liberals, seventy states, used to criticize state position or governments, any approach. But I don't know how last ten years they start swimming in the same river. Because finding multiculturalism like Okin Kimika very bad for women, dangerous for society. Have they changed their position just shifting, you know, focus a few minority groups, leaving all other women? Or they actually government has changed to take very multicultural approach because there is something changed from that point. This is my first point. Second point. Yes, we can criticize a group. When a young British lady is killed by her Dutch neighbors, we don't say all Dutch are no, killers. Right, yeah. We just focus on an individual case. But if it was happening in the Pakistan community, if it was Pakistanis or Indians or Turks, we killed the white British, it could have been whole community under that issue. That's the, actually, the, we need to focus that issue. Why society describes similar issues differently? Well, I mean, that, I mean, I think that is, in a sense, the issue that I'm, kind of, that I'm trying to sort of draw attention to. But what I, uh, what I also think is that it's, it's not... Um, I mean, that there's that differential attribution of agency, differential attribution of capacities for violence, differential, you know, that's the world of stereotypes that we kind of, we inhabit and that we're kind of constantly struggling with. But I don't think that, I don't at all think that that's going unchallenged. And I think there is, in fact, a plurality of voices, um, you know, including among feminist groups, uh, which, is, which is kind of raising issues around that. So... Um, there's, it's like you have to do it all the time. Um, I mean, you never, you never kind of put it behind you. But I, I think it's, um, I think, I think, I think there's been more. Um, sometimes I'm much more optimistic than I normally feel. I think there's been more progress <laughs> in that field um, than you suggest. Uh, Yes. I think you have lots of more questions to ask, but I think we came to an end of our session. There's already been a closing for having listened. Thank you, thank you everyone for coming.